congratulations on uh, your chuva being published, by the way. I, I've only just started reading it, but I love what I've read so far. Great. I can't wait to hear the ethical implications of it all. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had gotten through more of it because I actually just did Nita today in my um, uh, inter-Judaism class. And next time around, that is definitely going in the syllabus. Oh my gosh, I'm flattered. Uh, yeah, that prepositional phrase in my Judaism class really clarified what you meant when you said, I just did Nita today. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a lot of things that could mean. Yes. Why don't we just start by opening up and saying, if you all will recall, very recently we had the wonderful Rebecca Epstein-Levy on the show to talk about her new book. And today we're having her back to talk some more because we just couldn't get enough. So let's just start out by saying, Rebecca, hi, how are you? Yes. Hi, how are you, Rebecca? Well, I was unfortunately reading Twitter and the news and am now especially, anno- one wants one's book to be relevant, but not that way. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Well, it's a delight to have you back. Listeners will recall that last week we had, or not the week before last, because last week we had Marianne Williamson on the show, which was a twist of fate. Last week, or the week before last, we had technical difficulties and Michael couldn't be a part of an interview. And Michael was just so full of questions for you that we couldn't resist having you back for what is essentially the second half of that interview. Michael, how are you? You're having a tough week, from what I've heard. I don't want to be dramatic. A normal week, you know. It's just a normal week. But I'm very excited to be able to pose all of my questions. All of my questions to Professor Rebecca. Because I felt so left out last time. Oh. I felt really left out. And I yeah. listened to the pod. I was editing it. And I was like, this is great. This is great. Hava asked this question. She didn't ask it. Hava didn't ask the questions I wanted to. Right. I asked everything you wouldn't have asked. Which is, I guess, why I have a co-host, why we have co-hosts, is to make a complete, one complete person. Also, no one's called me Professor Rebecca before I'm touched. Is that okay? Of course, yes. It's like semi-casual dress, you know. Right, because it's Professor plus first name. To be clear, I'm recording in my bathrobe, so. (laughs) (laughs) Right, business casual. Thank you both for indulging me on a second episode of discussing your book, When We Collide, about sexual ethics and ethics in general, perhaps. Everyone should go and listen to the episode from two weeks ago. We cover some of the hits, hot takes, and analyses about STIs, about fantasy, about BDSM. And some of the interesting moral takeaways that you draw from these Talmudic texts, they're very cool. But what I wanted to talk about is the actual approach, the methodology that you use, and the ethical philosophy behind that methodology, especially in comparison to what you see as the common way that people go about interpreting Jewish texts in the Talmud. If you could describe that process and actually compare it to what you see as the standard that maybe you're trying to push against a bit. Yeah. So Hava and I, the other week, talked about the hermeneutical side of my methodology in the first part of the episode, right? And to briefly recap, one of the frustrations I was trying to push against was a tendency among academic Jewish ethicists to essentially proof text from 
the kind of surface level meaning of a given Talmudic text and connect it to a present day ethical problem. And to be clear, I'm like, I'm not the first person by a long shot to have been frustrated with this. Uh, There's a classic article from decades ago by Louis Newman called Of Woodchoppers and Respirators, where he questions the sort of same proof texting approach in bioethics. And he talks about, for example, the text where there's a woodchopper making noise and preventing a person from finally dying who's on their deathbed. And there had been a tendency in Jewish medical ethics to make the woodchopper kind of one-to-one analogous with external life-sustaining technologies. And so using the woodchopper text to talk about medical end-of-life ethics. And Newman was rightly suspicious of that connection. And so it starts there. But as for the ethics side of things, I would describe my approach in this book as kind of wishy-washily virtue ethics. And part of that is kind of dictated by what the texts themselves are doing, I think. Because if you had to pigeonhole the rabbis into one of the sort of three major Western ethical traditions, they probably fit closest to virtue ethics in as much as their overwhelming concern is how to cultivate the self as a sage, as a scholar, etc. Can I give an example of what I think you are criticizing. Mm-hmm. You don't like the approach of, I want to know what rabbis think about gay sex. So I'm going to go find all the occurrences of when they say something vaguely analogous to gay sex. Exactly. And take what they say and use that and apply it to my current predicament. That's not your approach. Correct. Yes. And in a way, this connects to what I was starting to say about virtue ethics, because I'm pretty convinced that most of the time when the rabbis are talking about what looks on the surface to be about sex, sex isn't the point. What they're talking about quite often is they might be using sex as a way to think about systems of maintaining certain kinds of social order. They may be using sex as a particularly juicy way to get at some interpretive problem. or And I think most frequently, they're using sex as a way to talk about ideals of sagely conduct and what, and I'm drawing quite a lot on Jonathan Schofer's work in The Making of a Sage and Confronting Vulnerability here. They're using it as a way to talk about how the ideal sage responds in a given situation. That's the virtue ethics part. They're talking about... The formation of the self. Yeah, they're exploring how to cultivate virtues within themselves and how to reinforce that in all sorts of different situations. Yes, exactly. Is this an accurate kind of description of your technique? Instead of saying, okay, where do the rabbis talk about gay sex? I should instead say, what is it that I like about gay sex? And or what is it that I think is beneficial (laughs) to society about gay sex? Yeah, I was going to say the first thing um, that seems uh, self-evident, but go on. (laughs) Frame into words the like the virtues that are cultivated when gay sex of gay sex, if you will. Yeah, well, not even the joy, but like the the character building of gay sex. <laughs> That's what I like about gay sex is that it builds character. Yes, when you put it like that, it makes it sound like I'm ruining gay sex, Michael. Oh my well, look, I mean, what well, does gay sex do for me as a sage? Look, philosophy in general just ruins sex. Period. So you know, you know that I'm not going to argue with. So if you are able to figure out what virtue is, perhaps being 
enforced by good, wholesome, delicious, family-friendly gay sex. You can then find instances in the Talmud of that virtue, of when the rabbis are exploring that virtue, and that might give you a more fruitful insight in how perhaps you can be approaching your gay sex differently or different ways to reflect on your gay sex or things like that. Is that kind of more in line with your approach? I think so, yes. Um, Except I would say, at least for what I'm doing in the book, it's less about the connections I personally draw have less to do with how can I improve my personal gay sex and more, okay, the regnant narrative about quote, sexual deviance is to align them with vice, with immorality, with selfishness, with essentially antisocial tendencies and characteristics. And by looking at the virtues cultivated by, let's say, the practices we often find in sexual minority communities, you know, such as, say, really explicit conversations about consent and negotiating what works and what doesn't, at, you know, at the beginning of a scene, and perhaps like even working the negotiation even as an organic part of the scene, you know, that to me, for example, is kind of, kind of analogous to the fact that, or to the virtue we find in rabbinic texts, that the rabbis are willing to talk in detail about anything without putting it off limits or cringing about it. So even in modern times, you're saying we should look at the sex that we're having and explore a little bit how it actually does reinforce virtues that, you know, we've collectively Mm -hmm. decided are worth Mm -hmm. reinforcing and are good for us. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can find something in the Talmud that might also be exploring those same virtues. But Mm -hmm. this is such a interesting kind of reframing. It's so easy to just say, well, I want to know about gay sex. It is. And I just want to go find some gay sex. I just want to go find that gay sex (laughs) in the Talmud. So like, how do you go about doing this kind of flip and actually, like, how do you know where to start? That's a really good question. I think at some point in the book, I make a joke about, well, okay, so if I've just dismissed the simple subject matter way of figuring out which text to work with, you know, I have to be left with something and, you know, short of just putting some citations on a dartboard and seeing what gets hit. Though I think I joked that uh, at least as an interpretive exercise, I'm not sure that's completely without merit, to be honest. Yeah. What I actually suggest in the book is in some ways starting from thinking of a general problem like sexual ethics or sexual risk or what have you. And then looking at texts and just asking, okay, what things might the rabbis talk about in a given passage that function in ways similar socially, in ways that are more similar to aspects of sex as we understand it now, than perhaps what the rabbis actually recognize as sex itself. And some of it's serendipity, I have to admit. Like, I don't know that I could give you a retroactive map of exactly how I got to all of the textual connections I did. I mean, part of it was that I was assigned... uh, Balberg's purity body and self for my uh, textuality comp in grad school because I wouldn't have thought to read about purity otherwise. And then I started reading and started digging into some of the texts Balberg was working with and w- then was struck by, hey, wait a minute, this works a lot like STIs. This is actually what you're saying is making me think about my teshuva on Nita. I wasn't really planning to weave these two things together when we started this episode, but a big part of how I 
did my text research for that paper was to go and find all the places where bleeding and need a status were delinked in the mm-hmm. halakha because that's where I thought mm, right. from a practical standpoint I would find what I want. But also what I'm doing on a deeper level when I do that is taking the model that sort of dominates our understanding of Nita, which is almost as a biological contagion mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. finding places where it's instead treated as a metaphysical quality of womanhood and mm-hmm. seeing what those ruptures in the various virtues and vices of Nita in the rabbinical imaginary are mm-hmm. telling us about how Nita functions on a base level. It feels like that approach, although I, I didn't yeah. go in... Um, I went in with a much more classic mindset of like, I'm going to find the things that talk about the things I want to support my conclusions. Ultimately, it's it's somewhat in alignment with the process yeah. of examining the virtues. I would say so. And, and the functions, as you say, like to a certain extent, I'm I guess one of the questions I go into sort of preliminary text research asking is, OK, in whatever I happen to open what does the thing they're talking about in this text do? What does this text itself do? And what does it do to me when I read it? What might it do in conversation with someone else reading? But I guess what I'm saying is I'm interested in text and the things the text talk about as almost having a kind of agency of their own, but also as things that just have concrete effect in the world, things Mm -hmm. that do things. They're not simply there to be acted on. Right, right. My brain is swimming. Uh, my brain is swimming. <laughs> it's very swimmy. Yeah, it seems like it's very actually hard to do this style of analysis. You have to be pretty familiar with the text. Like the more you do it, the easier it gets. Part of what's so appealing about the kind of let me just look in the index style approach is that it's very simple. It's algorithmic. It's it's formulaic. Mm-hmm. At least to find the primary sources that you are going to work with. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I guess this is why rabbis and you know are important i wish i had a rabbi although i will point out <laughs> yeah that, if only uh, you had a rabbi on this podcast <laughs> well no, hava hava i mean in my budding youth. a real one a man <laughs> right exactly <laughs> okay no but seriously i'll actually point out that in my field some of the worst offenders if you'll excuse the expression with the methodology that i'm critical of are in fact rabbis, often conservative rabbis, because that's just how the academy seems to have shaken it out. And it's therefore not accidental that in a lot of ways, a lot of academic Jewish ethics looks suspiciously like a conservative tshuva, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> so like, part of it is, you know, I think we need to ask, what are we doing when we're doing ethics versus what are we doing when we're doing sock, right? So that's one source of, like, if I were to give a genealogy, some kind of postmortem, I guess, of the approach I'm critical of. That's one side of it. But the other side, I think, is actually sort of very much a consequence of living in, at least in the United States and in the English-speaking world, right? Living in a context where it's dominated by a certain kind of white Protestant hermeneutical approach that very much privileges a certain sort of proof texting. Right, like a, like an evangelical style, like exactly. literal, like this is the word of God what it mm-hmm. is is what it is. Or at least inerrantist, right. And it may not even be conscious. It's just sort of like that's so pervaded the entire language in which we are kind of conditioned to speak about what the Bible means or what you know what a religious text means. Uh, I'm doing air quotes since you obviously can't see me on the podcast. But it's sort of like the joke where 
the fish says, what's water at a certain point? Right. I mean, I think it's not a coincidence that the most frequent users of this sort of utilitarian style of analysis Mm. of text are rabbis, especially conservative rabbis in your experience, because I think a lot of Judaism has over its history been really limited by our conception of what the halachic process can be, which is we, we basically think of it as a game of telephone of various generations telling each other Mm -hmm. what to do and what not to do. And the way the halakhic process works is that one text speaks to another text, speaks to me, and then I Mm -hmm. output meaning. Mm -hmm. But the halakhic process can be much more complex than that. And for the rabbis of the Talmud and for the Rishonim, and then less and less as you move towards the modern era, it was much more than that. And that interplay is much more obvious in the text. But as we, mm-hmm. especially like after the um, after the so-called enlightenment, I think our our conception of what halachic process means becomes much more utilitarian, and that's how we end up with mm-hmm. this tendency to be very like youth pastor voice about our Talmud. <laughs> like, you know who else talked about sexual ethics? The rabbis. Uh huh. Yep. I do see that like conservative rabbis are doing this and conservatives in general uh do this but i I see it on the left too oh for sure well to be clear there are plenty of conservative rabbis who do this and also very much think of themselves as good progressive liberals oh interesting shots fired (laughs) if any conservative rabbis are listening i promise that there are conservative rabbis that i know and love and consider dear friends some of my best friends are conservative rabbis so i can say this (laughs) but yeah like something i I see. It's hard to come up with a specific example, but it's like, okay, so you have, say, some orthodox rabbis or even just conservative in the colloquial sense of the word conservative people saying, look in the Bible or here it says, like, gay people equals bad. So therefore, gay people equals bad. And then on the left, someone responds and they are like, well, here it says something else. And on one hand, it's like, okay, they recognize that there's a game being played here. And it's like Mm -hmm. a surface level interpreting, reinterpreting thing. There's this game afoot um, that sometimes Mm -hmm. doesn't feel very satisfying. But there's something about kind of hitting the brakes and having the whole game come to a screeching halt and being like, wait, I'm just going to use a different hermeneutical style of interpretation. And that's just going to undercut all these arguments, both ones Mm -hmm. that I on the surface agree with and ones that I disagree with. And there's something kind of refreshing about that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't have a question there, but what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think I think that characterization is really good, actually. And actually, I believe in the episode the previous week, uh, I think I said to Hava something the effect of, that's not a game someone with our commitments is ever going to win, and I don't think we should try to play, because the rules of the game were written by the people who are deploying it to harmful ends. Because at a certain point, what the game winds up being is whack-a-mole. That's the game. It also doesn't seem to like do justice to what the quote-unquote yes. truth is of what these rabbis yes. are actually trying to say. Exactly. I mean, and I, you know, I, I think a really good example of some of the frustrations I see with this sort of game playing out are in recent conversations about quote-unquote the Jewish view on abortion, right? For the record, I am about as rapidly pro-abortion as you can get. 
I'm having an abortion right now. <laughs> Indeed. I, you know, I, I'm horrified by the political trends and the rapid criminalization in so many states, including the one I live in, oh joy, of what is necessary medical care. But I have some difficulty on a number of levels with the claim that, quote, Judaism supports abortion, and which then point to, you know, for example, there, there's a hit parade there, right? The um, the text in Arachin where you can't execute a pregnant woman until she goes into labor or until she sits on the birthing stool, excuse me. The, the biblical text where, you know, if a woman is hurt and she miscarries, the fine is monetary. It's a matter of torts rather than of murder and so on. None of those, like none of those texts are actually about the claims that I think a lot of us want to make about you know, bodily sovereignty about people who can become pregnant, being able to make choices about their pregnancy and about their bodies being just a social good, period. Because none of those texts are about individual choice. They're actually about, in most cases, uh, people who have never been and will never will never will be pregnant making decisions on behalf of pregnant people. And I'm not sure like that's the model we want to go with. And I also just think like, you know, it opens one up to a round of textual whack-a-mole when, and I think that in that case, I think the counter is, as my friend and colleague Michal Rauscher would put it, Jewish people have abortions. Let's start there. So have you thought about a virtue ethics approach to arguing a pro-choice position using the Talmud? I haven't thought as hard about it as I would like, but my instinct would actually be to go to texts that seem to be about labor and about circumstances in which labor can or cannot be coerced. Find out what the conversation about labor and specifically bodily labor, which at the time of the rabbis most labor was, and start there. Because the rabbis are never going to give me an answer that foregrounds bodily sovereignty. That's just not the paradigm they're working with. And if I try that, I'm going to get caught out by someone every time, and they're going to be probably technically right if morally wrong. Let me offer a counter possibility, which is that, you know, I think a lot of what you're saying is very true. And I think that many of the people who are out there who can win the game of whack-a-mole have similarly utilitarian approaches to what they're doing, which is mm-hmm. that they are they are in their hearts anti-choice, and they're going to yeah. find a way to be that way no matter mm-hmm. what. So we have like a spectrum of people who will sort of like find whatever progressive views they want in Judaism and a set of people who will find whatever authoritarian views they want in Judaism. But between those two sets of people, there's a whole spectrum of people who engage with Jewish text in different ways. Part of the beauty and possibility for me in in constructing Jewish ethical cases out of text is that there's some amount of people who are sort of free floating enough in that spectrum that mm-hmm. if they they are able to be swayed by narratives that are built with Jewish text more so than they would be by plain ethical arguments mm-hmm. and to me that's part of the i mean i don't mm-hmm. really take this approach of just like find the simplest what does Judaism say about this text but I still think that's like part of the reason to play the game at all is because there's actually a lot of points up for grabs that Mm. aren't as obvious a lot of like Jewish communal dynamics and connections that are sort of like 
always shifting and able to be changed by us through the ways that we work with text. Honestly, Which I don't think fair. you're arguing against necessarily. No, I'm not. And, you know, like, I will freely concede that as far as, you know, like, the tactical value of what gets most points up for grabs, like, I'm not qualified to speak to that past a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, I want to do what it takes to build a society where we don't where we don't hate queer people and trans people and we don't restrict vital medical procedures. And at a certain point, my hermeneutical gripes are going to take a backseat to that. Right. Hava, you're right. There are a lot of chips on the table that like we should be picking up. Even yeah, though, I think yeah. it's I think I guess part of what I'm saying is even taking a virtue ethics approach is still fundamentally playing the game. Any engagement yes. with Jewish ethics is playing in some arena of this same game for sure and we don't really have the option of thinking of ourselves as not playing it at all because that's just not uh we don't exist in a world that's um compartmentalized in that way i think it's sort of within that world it's a question of getting to articulate a variant of the game where i and people like me at least have some stake in building the variation of the rules and I'll also point out, like, I'm I'm the sort of person who sees theories as tools rather than to solve problems rather than as creeds, if you will. I'm not, like, inherently committed to virtue ethics as an approach. I start there because, in some ways, just because, like, I need a recognizable container to put what I'm doing in, and that's less wrong than others. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, there's this game that you're playing where you're trying to convince other people to, like, get on your side and you're using the text that you have and you're using different hermeneutical tools. But there's also a game that you can play with yourself to like, you know, have spiritual insight for yourself. And mm-hmm. certain games, at least for me, lend themselves more towards just self-confirmation of what I already believe. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't want my Judaism to only do that, right? I need it to challenge mm-hmm. me or else like kind of what's the yeah. point? Because, like, you know, I I live in a lowercase l liberal world, rights-based, you know, Mm pseudo-democracy. I'm super influenced by that, you know, for better or for worse. It's just the time I live in. And so, like, Judaism, in some ways, like, it's nice when it confirms the things I like, but it's also Mm -hmm. nice when it challenges that and makes me think. So it's like how that balance is kind of very hard to cultivate. It is, and I think that's, like, to me, that's actually a yet another reason to value at least sometimes the the methodology I'm trying to use of going in and seeing, okay, what are, because part of it is, okay, what are these texts telling me about the world that they live in and they kind of co-create and how that world works and what is central and pivotal in that world? And so you brought up the example of, I live in a liberal rights-based pseudo-democracy, and I want to hone in on that phrase rights-based because it's almost reflexive for those of us who live in were shaped by and have been shaped by said rights-based pseudo-democracy to think of all the things we value and to think of when we think of treating people with respect essentially not being motherfuckers right yeah yeah it's reflexive to put that in terms of rights to say that when people are being motherfuckers they are violating the rights of X or Y group. Right, right. And that's not like that's not wrong so far as it goes, but it's actually to me an incomplete account of what those people are doing when they're being assholes. And that's one place, for example, just really going into 
rabbinic texts at any point can challenge us is that it can force us, for example, to widen our understanding of justice and liberation and so forth from a kind of narrow rights-based perspective. Certainly working with rabbinic texts has helped me think about, okay, what does it mean? I know that I am committed to accepting, celebrating, liberating queer people, for example. And I, like everyone else, am reflexively used to thinking about that in terms of rights language. But one thing that going into the rabbinic texts can show me is there are actually other ways of getting other angles for getting at liberation and that we may be used to thinking about obligations as only the hammer with which assholes hit queer people. But what if I said something to the effect of, actually, we have moral obligations to all the people in our community. And part of those moral obligations we have include not just accepting, but actually supporting and engaging with and contributing to the liberation of a whole range of diverse ways of being within a community, because we understand that there are reciprocal obligations. Individuals have obligations to contribute to and support um, and sustain the community. And in turn, the community has obligations to the individuals within it in all their... I I know that the word diversity has accrued lots of uh, discontents, but here I mean it in just kind of a basic different ways of being sense. So personally for you, if it's not rights-based, what has studying, you know, these ancient Jewish texts taught you about the basis for those moral obligations? Like, where do you think that comes from? I mean, I I think it has taught me to think about those things very much in terms of obligations, which incidentally is why I don't want to be, I don't want to super pigeonhole myself in a a virtue ethics uh, box container Pigeonhole. I think I, in a, in pigeonhole. pigeonhole. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. I get okay. I get myself into trouble with idioms and metaphors. <laughs> I tell you, um, because like there's something deeply deontological about this too. That people have inherent worth, people have inherent dignity, and that dignity is sort of both inheres in an individual person and also creates a collective. Like to a certain extent being an anti-queer asshole fundamentally violates the obligations we have to our fellow people and the reciprocal obligations between individual and community, especially when, if the means by which people are being oppressive and assholes to queer people are through community power, then that tells me that that's a community that's failing in its basic moral obligations to its members. See, I uh, have the very cheap and easy option of (laughs) saying, I believe in God and that our obligations are inscribed into the DNA of the universe, essentially. And that's why we're able to detect virtues and obligations is because they're fundamentally true. But that's a a very conversation-ending proof on obligation. Indeed. And I was tempted to say the B'Salem Elohim bit, but everybody says that. Right. And I just got to be contrary. I mean, I find Hava, your stuff, it's always been refreshing to me because we're soaked in the rights-based stuff all the time. And the more you observe it and look at it, the more questions it raises for me. And and, and I also appreciate Rebecca kind of like the virtue ethics approach of like, okay, maybe we can imagine that God wants us to cultivate virtues and we go about doing that in different societies in slightly different ways, and that's what the rabbis are exploring. Or God just 
in the more deontological approach, God just has gives us duties. Just there are duties mm-hmm. you have, and it's not framed in a virtue, you know. And you can kind of mm-hmm. blend those two things together. It's all just very refreshing and nice, and like as insane as all this metaphysics and stuff probably <coughs> sounds like, at least to me, and probably in it will forever, just because of how I was raised. In some ways, it makes me feel less insane because I can look at a media cycle. And I can see the crazy on, I can see how the, how the game is being played in a way about rights and I can step back from it a little bit. And there's something kind of refreshing that these Mm -hmm. different metaphysics and hermeneutical tools and approaches that they give me. It's just neato. It's neato burrito. I don't know. I don't know. It's just neato, you know? Well, and, you know, like, frustrated as I am by it, I think you can actually see a clear example of the limits of really rights whack-a-mole, if you will, in the Texas federal court decision that was just handed down today, um, essentially eviscerating the parts of the Affordable Care Act that mandated insurers to cover a whole suite of preventative care procedures, most notably, including STI screening and counseling, a whole bunch of prenatal care and prep. And what the plaintiffs argued, and the basis on which the judge ruled, was that as employers who provided insurance to employees, who had convictions that they did not want to enable or support homosexuality, whatever that means. Personally, I would like to enable homosexuality as much as possible, I'm just saying. Totally. But... uh, It would cut down on violence so much. (laughs) Indeed. Although, I don't know. Dykes can be assholes sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) I say as one. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Um, In any case, these employers were arguing that their religious freedom was violated by being forced, I think the language was being complicit in the promotion of homosexuality by providing prep. And, like, yeah, uh, first of all, on its face, that's bullshit. But it also, I think, does bespeak the trap you can kind of get into when you know, we say, well, I have a right to these services. Well, I have a right not to participate in the provision of these services. So my rights trump your rights. It kind of becomes rock, paper, scissors. And I don't want to make light of this. Like, people are going to die because of this decision, to be clear. But I do wonder what would happen, at least in kind of the public. I'm not a legal scholar. I am not qualified to say how this cashes out in legal terms, but certainly in the public conversation, about it, I, I keep wondering what would happen if we put it in terms of yeah, actually we have the resp- we have the obligation to make available things that clearly prevent people from dying, and you know it's not a question of your rights not to participate in this, that, or the other. It's a question of we have response, we have a collective moral responsibility to care for each other. Start there. Right. I mean, I think to give a another example of how a difference in approaches can be important, one of the questions I frequently ask myself and many people frequently ask people in trans world is like, what's the big deal with trans What is trans Why should I as a cis person care for trans Which makes a lot of sense if you think about it as like trans people have certain Mm -hmm. things that they need to have the right to do and halacha needs to accommodate those. That's like not very interesting halacha for cis people. No. Um, It's really just like tachlis, like changing things on a practical level to accommodate a changing view of the rights of the individual. But if instead you understand it as I do, that trans people are often attenuated 
to virtues and obligations that cis people yes. have not developed the spiritual uh, yes. organs to detect, then you realize that trans halacha is not actually halacha plus trans people, but is unlocking like a, a whole new sense, yes. a whole new dimension exactly. of halachic virtues and obligations that have been heretofore undiscovered because we haven't been using half of our tools yes. to discover Ex- them. That's exactly it. And that, and that in some ways that actually brings it around back around to the book, because that's almost exactly the argument I am making with regard to sexual minorities and ethics, particularly when you put that in dialogue with Jewish texts. Um, one of the, uh, you know, one of the claims that I was especially annoyed by and wrote the book in response to was this claim that sexual small C conservatism was in fact about sort of communal values and thinking of the collective and thinking beyond the individual and that sexual deviance was the height of a moral selfish individualism. And if you know anything about sexual minority communities, like if you have literally ever attended a party that mostly queer and trans people attend, like you know how community oriented by necessity someone who lives as a sexual or a gender minority has to be because you can't necessarily count on the state to help you. And that there are, as you say, particular virtues, particular moral lessons and particular ways of being that we could all stand to learn something from that frankly ought to fundamentally change our outlook on ethics if we actually started taking the people we've dismissed as at worst deviants and at best appendages seriously as moral agents and moral thinkers. Now I'm scheming. Oh, what were you going to say, Hava? <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, like, this is exactly what I, like, my process in my teshuva, a question that I got asked several times about a halacha from the Rambam that I bring. The Rambam has this cycle that I talked about in our Nita episode that he basically believes that women, in his words, have a cycle of Nita that operates in seven and 11 day increments and repeats ad infinitum. And two different people asked me, Okay, but doesn't the Rambam just not understand women's bodies? Like, isn't that what's really going on here? Which is true on the surface level utilitarian approach to that text. But to me, there is uh, a hidden quality contained Mm -hmm. within, which is that the Rambam is sort of showing his hand that on some probably subconscious level, he believes it's possible for him to legislate the reality of what a woman is and what that means. And underneath mm-hmm. that form of authoritarian approach to Nita, there is in fact the possibility that we ourselves can take control of what a woman is and does. Mm-hmm. And this is like the the process of attenuation that makes it so that it doesn't matter that the Rambam was basically just wrong. Uh, because it's not actually about what the Rambam says. And the magic of halacha is that I get to take that Mm -hmm. virtue of self-creation, which I believe is the essence of halacha, and then the Mm -hmm. practical elements of what Rambam said and fuse them together in a way that he could have never predicted and would probably object Mm -hmm. to because that's the magic of the halachic process. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love love that way of framing it. Hmm. So many. Th- I'm now. I'm scheming, Hava. I'm like scheming. <laughs> I'm just thinking about what you said about trans halacha and how it's not supposed to be about trans issues or whatever. You know, specific to trans people. It's. 
I'm, I'm trying to think of a name for it that you know could kind of give it a little bit more of a kick, like the Order of Akiva. <laughs> I mean, the, the way that Lainey Solomon, my esteemed colleague at the Transhalacha Project, talks about it is as euphoric versus dysphoric halacha. Dysphoric halacha starts from the oh, question like of, of whether trans people uh, existing is okay. That's like how dysphoric halacha approaches it. And euphoric halacha starts from, much like you said, Rebecca, some Jews are trans. Let's start from there and then figure yes. out what it means to build a halachic process where that's fundamentally integrated into the values. Mm -hmm. Exactly. There's a refusal to just to even entertain that first question as legitimate. Like, I'm not going to stand for that, for that violence. Right. I'm going to begin from the premise that I'm here to remind you of the mess you made halachically. (laughs) And also just like, I'm here full stop. Like that, that horse has left the barn. (laughs) Right, that trans horse has, you know, put on her uh, binder and left the barn. Okay, no, seriously, there actually was a news piece about, and of course, because this was horse racing, was framed in in tort terms, but there actually was a piece about whether or not someone who had bought what they assumed was a mare and actually turned out to be, I think, uh, a stud. Well, he wasn't a stud because really an intersex horse. Oh, okay. And was the owner owed damages because of lost potential income from the horse being a broodmare somewhere down the line? Ah. So this has nothing to do with anything. Not yet. Just because we haven't found the person who is attenuated to the virtues contained in that very story. Well, that's a horse of a different gender. (laughs) I mean, listen, being a horse nut, I could actually talk about virtues of horses and being around horses for a very long time that's not what you asked me here for certified horse girl on the show indeed well this feels like i feel a very natural conclusion to the conversation coming about so let's wrap it up here the trans horse has crossed the wire (laughs) (laughs) why did the trans horse cross the trans road to get to the trans side Uh, and see trans road is like a is like a meta pun because of course the word trans has to do with crossing and what do roads do they i'll show myself out Um. (laughs) yes uh thank you so much for coming on the show again listeners if you haven't already go check out rebecca's new book when we collide we will include a link to her website in the description so that you can go get it immediately as you well should And as an aside, beloved listeners, we recorded a wonderful patron episode for you this month, but it accidentally got deleted. So we're going to have to record you a new one. We appreciate your patience in advance, and we're sorry about that. It's it's my fault. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It was it was my bad. We considered which virtues this patron episode would provoke in ourselves and in the community. Anyway, uh, yeah, so we'll we'll get right to work on that. Sorry, it's not out on time, but we'll have it out soon. And to all of you, Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov. Thank you so much.